Well, hello, everybody. This is Rabbi Dan Levin, and this is Essential Questions. Thanks so much for joining us today. As we embark on this new podcast, I wanted to use this first episode to focus on the idea of questions. Elie Wiesel tells the story in his famous book, Night, that when he was young, he had a teacher named Moshe. As they grew closer, Moshe explained with great insistence that every question possessed a special power. Man raises himself toward God, he taught, by the questions he asks. Later, he said, I pray to the God within me that he will give me the strength to ask him the right questions. Trying to figure out how to ask the right questions is a challenge that extends from the study halls of yeshivot to the classrooms of universities, the workshops of laboratories. We tend to get locked up in more basic questions. What am I going to do this weekend? How am I going to pay my bills? What do we want for dinner? And sometimes religious life gets locked into those picayune questions of practice. How do we do this? When do we do that? Can we do this now? But the larger, bigger questions, the eternal questions, essential questions, are often the ones that get into the deepest part of our spirituality and our quests for meaning, purpose, and understanding. Asking the right question can be the key to unlocking something extraordinary. And the scholar and friend of mine who knows more about big questions is our guest today, Rabbi Josh Fagelson, the author of Eternal Questions, Reflections, Conversations, and Jewish Mindfulness Practices. Josh has been a friend for a long, long time. Uh, we were blessed to share the Wexner Graduate Fellowship Program together. Josh is the executive director of the Institute for Jewish Spirituality. He earned his smicha, his ordination as a rabbi from Yeshivat Chovavei Torah in 2005, and served for six years as the rabbi at the Hillel at Northwestern University, where he also earned his doctorate in religious studies. During his time as director of Hillel there, he created an amazing initiative, which will occupy our attention today, called Ask Big Questions. Uh, and Josh, I'm very grateful for you being with us today. Great to be here, Dan. So excited that you're doing this and um, you know, long time, long time fan of your work. And so just really delighted and honored to be here. I appreciate that so much. So Josh, tell me a little bit, if you can, about your own Jewish journey. What led you into the rabbinate and to Hillel work in particular? and uh, your journey to sort of think about asking questions as sort of your life's work at this point? Yeah, it's a great question. Thank you. Well, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and I think that growing up in Ann Arbor in, in a university town had a big effect on me. And I remember my father, may he rest in peace, you know, imagining, kind of dreaming one day I might be, a, you know, a, a university president or something. Um, I think that there was something about being in that environment that colored in many ways my my approach to Jewish life and my approach to life. And so I grew up in a traditional family, quote unquote, like a, a conservative, basically Jewish family. And when I went to college at um, Yale, I, I got involved in the Orthodox community. And ultimately, I was a music major, uh, thought I might be an orchestra conductor, did a lot of other stuff, student government, etc. Um, ultimately, though, I really discovered that I wanted to spend time 
with Jewish text and Jewish life in a deep, immersive way. And I uh, found myself in Israel after graduating college, um, studying yeshiva for a year and fell in love with studying Talmud and, and, and Jewish texts and living a very rich uh, Jewish life. And that was, those were not things that I had had you know, growing up in a public school environment in Ann Arbor. And when I came back to the States, ultimately, I, I worked for a year doing some consulting, but ultimately found my way to rabbinical school, this upstart rabbinical school, you know, Yeshivat Chavavik Torah. I was in the second graduating class there. And I was really looking for a place at that time that was going to give me this interaction with a deep sort of textual approach and a deep lived um, approach to Jewish life that was sort of fully embodied and, and, and uh, the, the notion of hatmada, of uh, sort of eternality, I guess you might say, or steadfastness uh, that you find in a yeshiva environment. It's just like 24-7. I really wanted that. And so I found that at, at YCT. And and then ultimately, after you know getting married, we have a, a couple of kids in tow. We found our way to Evanston, Illinois, uh, where I was the became the Hillel rabbi at Northwestern. And, and I think the the approach to questions and the approach to my Jewishness actually picks up really at that point because what I found when I arrived, you know, back in a university town again, was I felt a real sense of calling. It was almost sort of innate and obvious to me that my rabbinate, my ministry was not only to the Jewish kids on campus, but it was really to everyone that I felt like, you know, we could help Jewish students in their Jewish identity and their Jewish language and their Jewish practice, but we were fighting almost a rearguard action against what felt like an enormous cultural tidal wave of a focus on a different set of questions that, than those questions which are really soul-nurturing. Um, there were questions about, you know, the questions on the mind of college students in 2005, which are probably not so dissimilar to the ones today, are how am I going to make a living? How am I going to survive? You know, and the university itself as an organism wasn't necessarily promoting questions that we share as human beings that are the questions that you and I as clergy people know innately as like good sermon questions, right? Who are we responsible for? Where do you feel at home? These questions that we come back to over and over again throughout our lives. And I found that my, my understanding of Torah was I was less interested in the Torah that was only answering Jewish questions. You know, why do we blow the shofar a hundred times on uh, on Rosh Hashanah or something versus the human questions of what are you awakening to? What are you returning to? What do you regret? What do you want to do better this year, right? Torah that responds to those human questions, that's the Torah that matters to me, always has mattered to me the most. And so I found... Um, my whole approach to questions and my approach to Jewish living really sort of came together in that. And that has been more or less my, my career for the last, you know, coming on uh, almost 20 years now. So that's a fascinating journey because what strikes me is that it started with a deep exploration of probably the most essential question, which is who am I, right? And what do I believe? Yeah. A deep dive, you know, almost as deep as I guess someone can really go into one's individual faith tradition, and then from that grounded place, looking out in the world and seeing how your wisdom can be applied 
or I should say maybe our wisdom can be applied to the questions that are the innate human questions. Yeah, and, and, and I think also part of it is growing up in a pluralistic environment um, where you know going to public school was huge because I, from an early age, had to explain to people like why I wasn't going to school on Jewish holidays, right? As a kid, I would have to talk to teachers about my... Uh, religious commitments and what that meant to me and to my friends and to, you know, to my many non-Jewish friends. And I think that that's, um, that's really, really important because it like built into me a sense that this is part of my narrative. Um, this is important enough that I'm going to make sacrifices for it. And it put me in dialogue with, you know, other folks, folks who live their lives in other ways. Right. And we could wind up sharing stories. I, I remember, you know, in college, um, one of the most formative conversations I had was with a friend of mine who, one of his parents came from a Jewish family, but he didn't identify as Jewish. He, he described himself as a cultural mutt, I remember. Hmm. And I remember I was going through, I was going through a moment of like real sort of personal faith crisis. I was, I went in college, I was like, I was, if, you know, for listeners who get the reference, I was Cal Rifkin when it came to going to uh, Minion. I went every day. Cal Rifkin had, you know, played in the most consecutive <laughs> games of any any baseball player, right? Over 2,000 games uh, in a row. Never missed a game. I went to Minion every, every morning. And then one morning, I was standing there, I was davening, and I just, I had this moment that, you know, you should have when you're, a, you know, junior or senior in college, where I said, oh my God, like, I don't believe any of this. And I like walked out. I left. And I didn't come back for like two weeks. And I was really having a crisis of faith. And I was talking to this friend of mine at one point talking about this. And he said, I am so jealous of you that you like know where you come from. You like, you have a story and I don't know what my story is. I'm like, but I would give anything to like have the clarity of understanding like the inheritance that you feel like you have. And that was a real moment of encounter and understanding for me. Um, that was really, really important. So I think that living my life in relationship, in dialogue with other people and having to then find the ways that our uh, tradition can be a common um, a common text, as it were, something we can talk about together, regardless of whether somebody um, identifies as Jewish, that actually has turned out to be really, really important to me. So in your initiative that you started at Hillel in Northwestern, and now that uh, has evolved into a national initiative, uh, and now in your book, what makes a question a big question? What makes a question an eternal question, or to use, uh, you know, my my parlance, an essential question? I'll confess that the title "Eternal Questions" for the book <laughs> really was because when we when we looked at the cover and we we're like, we're going to call this "Big Questions" on the weekly Torah portion. It just felt felt like that wasn't quite didn't have the level of gravitas, and so we like we moved it over to "Eternal Questions." But the concept is really the same. So what we found, well, I should actually tell the story of how this came about, and then that will illuminate, I think, um, what the principles are. So the way I, I, I talk about that, that I stumbled onto this idea of big questions. Um, the first year I was on campus, like you and every other rabbi in the summer, I was fretting about the high holidays and what are we going to do for Rosh Hashanah and Kippur. I was walking around the campus with my uh, now 17 year old son but at that time was uh, three weeks old i was pushing him around in a in a baby carriage um getting acquainted with the campus and i found this spot that on northwestern's campus like many others there's this place where 
theater groups and fraternities and sororities, they hang out these painted banners, painted sheets, right, with like announcements for upcoming events. And so you'd have like Thursday night, you know, Midsummer Night's Dream, Friday night party at Sigma Chi, right? So I figured we would put out a painted sheet that says Saturday, Yom Kippur, repent. <laughs> and then, you know, a couple of things then happened to me. And I was like, well, we, we could get a banner at Kinko's, right? Something a little better than just a painted sheet. And second, something in me said, why don't I make this a question instead of just an announcement? And if I were going to write a question, the question would be, what will you do better this year? Right? That's the theme of the high holidays. And we had little ideas of things to do better, donate blood, drink fair trade coffee, call your parents, vote. And we put it out there, northwesternhillel.org, waited to see what would happen. At Rosh Hashanah at Yom Kippur, um, as people were filing out, they would come up to me and they'd say, Rabbi Josh, we saw the banner that you guys put out. Uh, my friend and I, we were walking along on the uh, on the campus, and we started this great conversation about what we were going to do better this year, and you should make more of these banners. And so it led to making more banners with those kinds of questions on them to prompt conversation and really sort of extend the educational environment, as it were. One thing led to another, you know, we got a little grant from the Jewish Outreach Institute, and we uh, created a little website, and then it just sort of snowballed and turned into an initiative, and it was always for the entire campus. It wasn't just like in the Hillel building, right? It was really for the whole campus. And when several years later, we got funding to make this into a national initiative and really create circles of people on campuses that could talk about these questions, uh, these big questions that we share, we had to figure out, well, what are those questions? What, what, which of these questions work and which don't and why? And what we discovered was that the questions that really worked, that landed, they satisfied two criteria. They mattered to everybody, and they were questions that everyone could answer. And what I think is really helpful to, to distinguish here is sometimes we get, we might think of big questions as they matter to everybody, but only some people can answer. We actually call those hard questions, and here's an example. So what is the meaning of responsibility, right? What is the meaning of responsibility? That matters to everybody, but only some people can answer that. The way that's constructed, if you are a philosopher, if you are a you know, political theorist, if you're a linguist, if you think of yourself as a smart person, you know, you'll probably, you're going to be attracted by the language of defining meaning. And if you're a rabbi, you'll like that question. <laughs> a lot of people. Um, I do. And yeah, right. Right. Um, but what tends to happen in that kind of conversation is that people who don't identify that way, even though it matters to them, they're, they might shy away from participating in that conversation. They might be in, intimidated by the language of what's the meaning of, looking for an objective definition, pulling out, as my family often did on Friday nights, um, a dictionary right, to define <laughs> a word. And if you just slightly change that question to, for whom are you responsible, or for, for whom are we responsible, all of a sudden, that question shifts into one that everybody can answer. It doesn't matter if you are, you know, Bill Gates or the person who cleans Bill Gates's toilets. Everybody has an equally valid, wonderful answer to that question. Who are you responsible for? You could talk about your kids, you could talk about your parents, you could talk about your neighbor, you could talk about whoever, um, you talk about yourself. And, and that democratizes it. It opens it up less into the realm of expertise and more into the realm of story sharing, right? And, um, and it makes it then a question that all of us can share and we can connect 
with each other. We're not trying to convince one another of anything. We're not trying to prove something. It's not a contest to see who's smarter, um, whose definition is better. It's just about what stories do we have around this and allows us to reconnect. So that's how we really define big questions. And then a couple of other things. Um, one is they're, they tend to be, um, they're directed at a subject, not an object. So there's always a you or a we, right? There's a pronoun in there usually that personalizes it. And, uh, and they tend to not use technical language. We really try to use plain language again, so everybody can share them. Uh, and they tend to be short, right? We, we don't want these to be like 10 word questions. They should be like five word questions, right? Try, try to really economize. And again, I think you and I probably recognize these as these are good sermon questions. They're the kinds of questions that we organize our, like we can organize our communal conversation around because they're inclusive and they're welcoming and they open us up into stories. Well, I think that part of the reason they seem like sermon questions is because when you get to uh, whether it's just a, a weekly message that you may want to share with a congregation, but more around the high holidays when you're trying to invite people to think in a more grand fashion. The idea is to try to encapsulate the things people are thinking about, but they don't necessarily articulate, but they're rumbling around in people. I think that part of what makes a question an essential question is one that people ponder, even if they don't necessarily have language that defines the pondering. I That's think there's right. so much that goes on in people's hearts and in people's souls, but they don't give voice to it. It just keeps them up at night. And they don't I, I, even yeah. know why it's giving them angst or why there's a yearning or a longing because they don't know how to name it. And part of what a sermon sometimes does is it names the thing that you've been thinking about, but you didn't know what to name it. Totally agree. Yeah. And and, and so many times that, that I've gotten feedback of, you know, thank you for naming this question that's been sort of bugging me, right? I didn't I didn't have the words for it. But once you can give, you can help people identify those words like, oh, right, that's the question I've really been thinking about um, or that's been sort of operating in the background, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, and totally, it can, it can be a very healing, cathartic experience just to even have that question named. So do you think, Josh, in our society, people are hungry for big questions? Do you think people sometimes go out of their way to avoid asking big questions? What is it about asking big questions or essential questions that touches people? Or does it scare people? I think it definitely touches people. There's a, uh, a, a tension between, you know, the, the distinction I made between hard questions and big questions before hard questions matter to everybody, but only some people can answer, they privilege expertise. When I look around at so much of our media culture and so much of our um, economic culture is oriented around hard questions. You know, what should we do about this? Or what is the best approach to that? Or, you know, met my son when he, my oldest son when he was younger. He he's a huge sports fan, and he would always ask me on the way to shul. He'd be like, "So Abba, like, who are the ten best rank order? The ten best baseball players of all time?" 
everything was like a ranking thing, right? <laughs> I, would, I used to get like, I would lose my patience with them. Really, why do you need to rank everything all the time? Like everything needs to be like put in rank order. Like you can just say there are 10, you know, here are 10 of the best baseball players of all time. No, they have to be in order. And there's something cultural in that, that, you know, we want to create hierarchies. I think our, I think our economic system rests on that. I think our political system um, in many ways rests on that. And I think that there's a lot of forces that really depend on those kinds of hard questions. And they, they lead us to resist this notion of big questions of like recognizing one another's common humanity. And I think that some of the best moments of the internet in the last 20 years have been those moments when we do recognize one another's common humanity and we really open up and connect. They come in moments of crisis, right? They come, um, they, they come in moments when we can see uh, the suffering of other people and we're able to open our hearts. They, they come in moments when um, we can uh, recognize each other's common humanity through the stories that we share, right? In telling stories that resonate with us, not because somebody's better, somebody's higher on the list, somebody's lower on the list, but because they're another human being. Yeah, Brene so Brown I, once uh, said something that touched me. She said, narrative is data with a soul. Yeah, beautiful, right? And so, but when we do that, that pushes against the whole culture of commodification, the whole economics that we have, et cetera. And I think, you know, so I think that there's resistance. I think, I think we're, there's some conditioned resistance we have to that. Um, but I think we also... I mean, so much of the lessons of the last few years in, in the United States anyway, and maybe throughout the world have been, there's this push-pull that we have um, where we live in a democratic, a multicultural democratic society. And to me, I, I've been thinking a lot recently about like the habits of the heart, right? That Tocqueville wrote about um, that are necessary for living in a multicultural democratic society in Hebrew, we would call that avodah shabalev, what we refer to, what the Talmud refers to as prayer, right? But the habits, the heart habits, the actual spiritual work that we have to do to live in this kind of a, um, in, in a world. And I think that, you know, an openness to these kinds of questions, to non-hierarchical ways of living, to living together as human beings who have bodies and who are equally valid, equally created in the image of the creator, all of us have an equal share in the world. And I think asking these kinds of questions, conditioning ourselves in this way, it's part of our work of mending and repairing the world that we live in and making it possible for you know, us to live peacefully together. I think in some ways, people are very, very nervous or anxious when the answer to a question is, Huh, I don't know. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I am touched by the distinguishing characteristic between a big question and a hard question. Because if the question is, what do we do about this incredible wave of migrancy across the southern border of the United States? Mm. That's a hard question. And I think you're right that it requires expertise that most of us don't have. But I think figuring out how you transform a hard question to a big question opens up, as you say, a conversation. 
And I think in some ways it reduces the anxiety around confronting big questions, which is what if I don't know the answer? Right. Because also the truth is like none of us know the answer. We may have ideas. None of us has the answer, right? What's also important in what you're saying, Dan, is that that the that what big questions do is they they help us build up the trust, like the social capital that we're going to need to spend when we have to make choices about hard questions. You know, Congress is never going to debate a big question, and Congress shouldn't debate a big question. That's not that that's not what debating societies or policy making bodies, you know, are, are meant to do. But you know, I think as we see over and over and over again the ability to debate and ultimately make hard choices where one side um, is going to be asked to sacrifice is going to be able is in, the minority is going to you know have to say okay we'll go along with this decision even though it didn't go our way in order to do that you have to have trust you have to have social capital you have to have bonds human bonds of connection and the more those get eroded uh the 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 the, the more the propensity for violence, you know, is there. And we saw that in full display, you know, two years ago on January 6th. And so I think that, you know, big questions are essential for the background work, right, that we need in order to live together in families and communities as a country. We have to, we have to remember constantly the human stories that are part of this, that the people who are crossing the southern border are human beings just like the rest of us, like 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 you and I are, and they have their own stories, and that are they probably echo in some ways, you know, stories that some of our ancestors, um, either more recent or more ancient, uh, that some of the stories that they carried um, and and lived, and so it's not so far from us. Doesn't mean that from a policy point of view, it should just be let's open the border and dissolve everything, and like you know, that that may well not make the most sense, but it allows us to. Um, approach that question with a greater deal of um, humanity, uh, compassion, and I think ultimately resiliency uh, that we need. So, Josh, what do you think are maybe three big questions that you think we, perhaps in the American Jewish community or the broader American community, ought be asking that we're not asking? Mm. Wow, that's great. So I think that, well, I'll give you three, but I think they really boil down to one. <laughs> so, because I, I think ultimately, in my, in my experience, most big questions actually emanate from one place. But I would say one question that we're constantly rubbing up against is where do you feel at home? Right? Where do we feel at home? And I think that the question of home is it's such a it's such a huge category it's such an orienting category for us um, as human beings from the time we are born uh, throughout our lives um, and i think we come back to that question all the time you know, where do we feel at home where, where when are we guests when are we hosts uh, but permutations of that question of home it gets to the border question it gets to for us as jews it gets to in israel and uh and diaspora question and i think for me in my most recent work at ijs i think uh, I've really developed a, a, a very, you know, my bumper sticker when people ask me, what's your definition of spirituality? To me, it's our capacity to feel at home in the universe, right? When we can feel at home deeply, wherever we are, that's like we're exercising our spirituality. But so I think where do we feel at home is number one, is, is one. Two, um, I think is who's in our community, 
or who's in your community, right? How do we, who do we see? Who do we not see? Who do we welcome? How do we welcome? What does it mean to be in community with each other? I think that's, that, that question affects synagogues. It affects, you know, the new constellations of Jewish community that have been emerging, you know, over the, over recent decades. I think there, there's all sorts of questions that revolve around that. But I think ultimately both of those are sort of, in, in, in Talmudic terms, toladot, uh, uh, descendants <laughs> from really a, uh, a meta question, which I think it, it, to me is like the, 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 the primordial question, I think, which is, um, I go back to this question, for whom are we responsible? Uh, to, the reason I think that that question sort of drives all the others, you know, I, I hear it in the most famous asker of, of big questions in Jewish tradition is, is Hillel, uh, you know, Hillel, the, 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 the founder of rabbinic Judaism. And, you know, Hillel's famous questions in Pirkei Avot, in our teachings, the Ethics of the Sages, is, uh, he, he had three questions, right? Um, right? If I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And when I am for myself, what am I? Uh, and if not, now when? Um, the first two of those questions, if I'm not for myself, who will be for me? And when I am for myself, what am I? Those are basically the question of for whom are we responsible, right? That's what I hear in that question. I got to be responsible for myself. We're also responsible for other people. And how we live that constant dialogue, um, that uh, th those competing pulls, um, how we live that in life-giving, beautiful ways, that's the whole project, right? I think that that is, that is the project of Judaism. That's the project of life. And home comes from that. Community comes from that. Everything else comes from that. So I would go ultimately to the question of for whom are we responsible? The one thing about big questions is sometimes they can be so big that uh, if you ask them just in that way, <laughs> um, they don't actually allow you to get a handle on the things that you really need to work on. So sometimes you got to like build some scaffolding in there and point people in the direction towards concepts that, you know, you got to, we want to work more towards. So home, community, all of those questions. So I always found that Hillel's genius was that he asked those questions, but he didn't give an answer. Right. Right. Uh, right. And so I would ask, you know, what makes for a good answer to a big or eternal or essential question? Wow. Dan, I've been doing this work for, you know, 15 years, and I don't think anyone's ever asked me that question. Thank you. <laughs> it's a big question. That's, That's a great question. That's a great question. Wow. Um, what makes for a good answer? Well, one thing is, starting with first-person experience, so speak for yourself, don't speak for other people. In your own experience, right, first and foremost, how does this come up? And not appealing to outside definitions and outside texts and, and, and ideas, but really go to your own story, right? And that's not to be selfish. That's not to be navel-gazing, but that's to actually connect with your own story, right? This gets, again, to spiritual practice. Is so much of spiritual practice is about just like be present with who you are, um, with your own story. Uh, connect with that. You know, get, get in touch with that. So speak for yourself and, and really Look within yourself to hear how is that question alive for you. Notice if there is an urge to sort of absolutize and, and imagine that, you know, your response to this question is like the response. 
And I think be aware of that. And if it comes up, pause for a moment to sort of say, hmm, do I really believe that? And do I really want to hold that? Or do I want to keep myself open to listening to the stories of other people and their responses to this question? I think maybe those are two, I'd have to think of more, but I think off off the top of my head, those are two really fundamental pieces of responding to um, and answering uh, big questions. I think one of the things that I learned in uh, the incredible learning we shared at IJS was the idea of learning how to cultivate curiosity mm-hmm. and to replace cure the judgment with curiosity, which for me has been in many ways, a transformative realization. I appreciate this time uh, together, Josh. And the way I'd like to conclude is by asking you, what is the big question you're asking yourself these days? Hmm. Well, I right now I'm heading into my my third year or my fourth year, right? I'm coming up, I'm finishing three years. I'm coming up, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be entering my fourth year working at IJS. Yeah, leading it. And the first three of those years have really been colored by the pandemic. And 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 yeah, and, and that, that has had such a huge effect. And so I'm now really thinking about the, the question I feel like is animating me, at least in my professional life, is, you know, what might our future be? Um, which I know sounds a little generic, but I feel, and maybe you feel this way too, right now, there is just a greater amount of uncertainty and churn and instability um, in the world uh, than I can remember in my life. And there are a lot of huge forces at play. And so I'm really, uh, I'm, I'm really sort of sitting with that question of, you know, what might our, our different futures be? And then for myself is, you know, what, what does my leadership uh, need to look like? Um, or what do I want it to look like? And how do I you know, show up for our organization, for the people I work with, for um, the for the Jewish people um, and the world in um, in ways that can help us grow into that, uh, grow into a healthy future? So that's that's really the the question I find right now that's front and front of mind for me. Well, that is a good question. Uh, what might our future be, and what ought our contribution be? to building that future is certainly one that I'm wrestling with, and I'm sure that many people are. Josh, I'm so grateful for your time and for all that you're doing for uh, the Jewish community and for the world. Uh, This conversation has really been uh, a rich privilege. So thank you so very, very much. Essential Questions has been made possible by the Temple Beth El Jewish Ideas Incubator, committed to creativity and innovation in modern Jewish life. Many thanks to our production team, Jason Reeser, Amanda Brenzel, Jake Harris, Susan Stallone, and Eliza List. Special thanks to Jake Harris for original music and Isabella Tenenboim for the original artwork. You can find this podcast on Apple Music, Spotify, and the Podbean app, as well as on Temple Bethel's website at tbeboka.org slash essentialquestions. You can rate us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you can spread the word, and we certainly want to know what your essential questions are. Email us at eq at 
We look forward to reading your comments and to addressing your ideas in future episodes. I'm Rabbi Dan Levin, and thanks so much for listening to the Essential Questions podcast. Thank you.